Twas the nightmare before Christmas, and all through the house, no pearl earrings were given, just some sort of spout. Blanche's stockings were torn, not handled with care, in hopes that soon Mr. September would be there. Sophia was ready to get to the port, but first a hostage situation she would have to abort. With Dorothy in her boxy sweaters and Rose being a sap, they rushed to their planes, hoping to take a nap. When what to their horrified ears did they hear? A storm is a-comin', no flights shall depart here. On the way to Albert's they ran out of gas, but no need to worry, the cheesecake is gratis. Join Dorothy, Sophia, Blanche, and Rose as they try to celebrate Christmas after being dealt blows. So dash away, dash away, dash away, Hari, it's time we go on a surf and safari. In today's episode, Twas the Nightmare Before Christmas. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. Inspired by the title of the famous poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, by Clement Clark Moore, and not the Tim Burton film of the similar name, the ladies aren't celebrating the night before Christmas, the first line in the poem, which is often mistaken as the title. Rather, their situations will turn into a nightmare. Coming in the front door is an excited and shopping bag-carrying Blanche in a blue and teal cover-shirt-pant combo. After calling out all of her roommates' names and not getting a response, Blanche turns back to the open door and, just like Rose with her stray dog, invites her guest in. Except this time it isn't a hairy dog, it's a hairy mall Santa who's here to check Blanche off his naughty list, or perhaps add her to it. As the jolly pair scamper down the hall, they are very soon, too soon, like impossible to have missed a Santa walking into their door soon, followed by Dorothy and Rose. Optimistic as always, Rose hopes Dorothy is sharing in her delight from all of the shopping. Dorothy, aka me, is not having it. Yeah, I loved it. It was crowded. People were awful. I'm stressed about the money I spent. Yuck. Even if it is the Yuletide season, Dorothy has had it. Yuletide, while now used to encompass the Christmas or holiday season, is actually two words combined. Thanks, Merriam-Webster. Yule, representing Yule, the pagan winter festival Christmas is based on, and Tide, which is an annual season surrounding the festival. Tide can also simply mean time, derived from betide, which in Old English means to happen especially by fate. The grouchy Dorothy is wearing khakis, a black shirt with a white collar, and a fall time in Miami brown, orange, and green decorative jacket, and she's feeling as blue as Rose is in her bright dress. For Dorothy, it's not just the shopping itself that was stressful. It's that Christmas has changed. Coming from a gal that grew up in the Depression, seeing the mannequins in the window of Burdines wearing Ralph Lauren ski suits is a bit too commercial, corporate, and capitalistic. Burdines was a department store located in Florida. 
They have since closed, so you'll have to get your 1986 Ralph Lauren Ski Parka online, now selling for about $400, although a brand new one will set you back about the same. Hi, I'm Tommy Hilfiger. Just walk into any Burdines, and you're walking into Florida's premier fashion store, Great American Fashion, and that's something I know about. Burdines was the first store in Florida, as a matter of fact in America, to carry the Tommy Hilfiger collection. This year, with Burdines, we'll be launching a new Junior Jeans collection and home furnishings with everything you need for the bed and bath. I'm proud to be a part of the Burdines family. Happy 100th birthday, Burdines. As Dorothy laments about the commercialization of Christmas, a bearded and Santa hat-clad Blanche comes scuttling into the living room, chased by the big man himself. Unfazed, Dorothy quips that Blanche must not have been expecting them to be home so soon. Also unfazed is Blanche, who starts to introduce her new friend. But before she can get his name out, Rose pulls a Buddy the Elf. Santa! Oh my God! Santa here? I know him! More importantly, she knows it's a Santa who should be taking his duties much more seriously. On a break from the mall or not, Ed Kleckner, who for one reason or another is not credited in the show, should be getting back to work. Coming to the defense of Santa and Blanche is Dorothy. When Rose scolds the Mr. Claus for not doing his job of giving the people what they want, Dorothy shares she's seen Blanche's Christmas wish and this is, in fact, Santa doing his duties. Ho, ho, ho. Cramming the disgraced man's hat and beard into his hands, Rose boots Santa out the door. Even when Blanche pleads her case, whining that she waited in line for an hour to get access to that lap, Rose doesn't care. Too bad, tough Holly. Holly being related to Christmas came from, according to flowerkingdom.com, the mythology of an oak tree being in control of the light and bright of spring and summer, and Holly controlling the dark of fall and winter. Wreaths were actually worn as crowns for good luck in Celtic mythology. The Druids, or Celtic religious leaders, saw holly as a symbol for eternal life, fertility, and magic. It wasn't until modern Christians got a hold of holly that it became connected to Christmas. The points on the end of the leaves are seen as the thorns on Jesus' crown, and the berries are his blood. As holly is evergreen, it is the continuing life that you have once you too have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Sound the alarms! We've got a plot whoopsie. Back in season one, in That Was No Lady, you may recall Blanche, being her highest and mightiest, shared with Dorothy, who was seeing a married man, that she would never do such a thing. Not worried about Mrs. Claus when it came to sitting on Santa's lap, Blanche was apparently unbothered at the idea it might upset the real-life Mrs. Claus, Mrs. Kleckner. That's right, this Santa is married. And Blanche knows it. And she doesn't care. She can't she can't think straight in the fog of extreme Santa horniness. That's true. She's just she's just scared and alone. Her eyes kind of glaze over. As she's talking about it, it's yeah, she goes into sort of a fugue state <laughs> and seems to be really getting worked up from the inside. I love too that so much of the acting, how they kind of um keep scenes exciting always in this show is they're very fidgety so it I think it always helps with you just have a couple of people sitting in a room talking you know it's not like they're not at central perk and there's like a whole crowd of extras behind oh, them yeah, you know four ladies in a yeah, room, yeah so if you watch Dorothy is kind of always fluffing her shirts and kind of like always correcting her purse and stuff so it makes it 
more exciting, I yeah, guess. Visually exciting, yeah, yeah, and they're always like playing with their earrings. And I love when Blanche goes into her Santa thing. Like she is just rubbing on the couch. Her whole like, body is moving constantly. I believe you said she was violently horny. It appeared to be. <laughs> I'll have what she's having. <laughs> and what she's having is Santa. I'd do it. <laughs> In her pink sweater dress and pearls, Sophia has now arrived home from shopping as well and is confused as to who she just passed in the entryway dressed as Santa. When Blanche has a rose moment of being literal and answers with, that was Santa Claus, Sophia can't help but sarcastically reply, oh, I thought it was Fidel Castro. As discussed a couple episodes ago, Fidel Castro was the communist president of Cuba from 1976 to 2008. Even though he was bearded and had a belly, he was known for wearing all green military garb and not being very jolly. Sophia isn't asking if that was Santa, but why Santa was at their house. When Rose throws her under the bus with Blanche picked him up at the mall, she's quick to defend herself. Blanche can't help it. She sees a man in a Santa suit and goes wild. I learned from ibtimes.com that Blanche has a condition, a condition called Santaphilia. Perhaps Blanche has some issues with Big Daddy. Maybe she likes a silver fox or white fox, in this case, with a dad bod. Counselor Deborah Walsh has some ideas of her own. With Santa, you have a magical man known for being kind and giving, jolly and bright, a man that is watching you, and if you're a naughty little one, you might get punished. I mean, after hearing Blanche's lurid details surrounding the leather boots and red flannel and the more I read about it, the more I'm like, wait, is Santa hot? The band Steel Panthers knows what's up. It's interesting that the elves, as we all know the helpers in the North Pole to be, are referred to as dwarves here. It's possible this oh boy was just a mistake in word choices. Dwarfism is real, but dwarves are mythological bearded forest creatures, kind of like David the gnome, except, you know, he was a gnome. Hence why people with dwarfism should be referred to as little people, not dwarves. Elves are the pointy-eared little guys we all know as Santa's little helpers, and of course, another December favorite home to elves and dwarves, the Lord of the Rings. What's happening out there? Shall I describe it to you? Or would you like me to find you a box? Shifting gears, Rose, while still giving a concerning side-eye to Blanche, asks Sophia if she was successful in her Christmas shopping. She was, but still can't believe just how expensive everything is, especially the $89 doll she purchased using Dorothy's credit card. When hearing it was she who would be financially backing the good cheer, Dorothy insists her mother return all the gifts, even the lovely cashmere sweater she got for Blanche. Knowing Blanche would be devastated to see the sweater go, Sophia uses it as bait to keep Dorothy from backing out of the forced gift return. After the expensive doll and fancy sweater, there was the VCR for Rose. Spending 89 bucks might not seem that outrageous, seeing as an American Girl doll will easily set you back $100 today, but that $89 is today's money, which would have been about $223 back then. It's very possible Sophia is talking about the hard-to-find toy of the year and my favorite friend growing up, Teddy Ruxpin. 
He doesn't destroy galaxies or capture aliens or fold up into a space vehicle. And his friends don't have names like Kiltron or Smashoy. Hi, my name is Teddy Ruxpin. All he does is tell stories about friendship, caring, sharing. And he goes on adventures where the only thing he captures like you to meet some of a child's imagination. He was only $69. Nice. But for the cassettes and books, it was another 20. And without the cassette, which you would put into the player in his back and was the original audiobook and the book you used to follow along with the story, you would just have a heavy plastic-filled teddy bear. I think I've only ever been around a non-functioning Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> So I've never been impressed. I've always been like, whatever. Oh, that's fair. You've never seen it in action. But I've seen it in movies and I remember the commercials and being like pretty, pretty into that guy. He seemed pretty cool. He was wearing, is he wearing a smock? He's got kind of like a vest, but it's yeah, a little smocky. It's like a burgundy t-shirt and the cream vest. That'd be a great Halloween costume. Tell me about your relationship with Oh God, I loved him so much. We hung out all the time. I would just sit in my room and put the tape in. It was not only like a cool toy, but mind-blowing technology because his mouth would move and his eyes would blink. Oh, yeah. It's like your own Muppet or something. Yeah. And he's talking. He's like, how are you today? And he's like, let's read a book. And you're like, okay. And then you can follow in the book while he's like telling you all the words. Oh, it was the best. It's basically, I am the Teddy Ruxpin of Golden Girls. (laughs) That's right. You just watch Golden Girls along with me. You listen along. I'm telling you the story. Yeah, I'm little five-year-old you <laughs> saying, Teddy, please <laughs> hug me. Be my friend. Yeah, I don't know if that's sad or not, but I thought it was cool. No, that's so sweet. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. Cashmere is a very specific type of wool. Its softness, warmth, and the limited area in which the goats that produce the wool live lead to it being so expensive, with most sweaters starting at $100. I feel like the amount of times I've, I've uh, a cashmere sweater has been a plot point in something I've watched versus <laughs> how many cashmere sweaters are around. is That you've actually encountered? I don't think I've ever been cash near one. <laughs> you did it. Thank you. I'm back. (laughs) No wonder Dorothy is upset about the idea of having purchased a VCR. They were about $250 in 1986 or $625 now. Yikes. In a now hilarious article from 1986, the New York Times wrote about the sales of compact disc players, color televisions, and video camcorders. Sales were booming and they were into the billions in that year alone. One million camcorders were sold, and the numbers were only expected to grow. Dorothy must have a pretty good credit score because one camcorder was around $900. See, children, back before we had cellular phones, we had physical cameras and a separate camcorder. The best reference I can think of is Amy Poehler as the cool mom in Mean Girls. Starting out holding tapes that were the same size as those you would watch in a movie in your VCR, camcorders were cumbersome, expensive, but totally necessary. Well, that does it for Rose. This will be the best, most exciting Christmas ever. Her delight only proves Dorothy's point, that Christmas has become nothing more than a competition of who can spend the most money. Sophia doubling down by telling her to pay off all the expensive gifts via credit cards and that she should just relax. It's Christmas. 
As Dorothy stands and gives her Dickens-inspired speech about finding the love in the holiday from being with family and spreading cheer, Sophia tells her where she can find the true spirit of Christmas in the ladies' department of Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus has been around since 1907. Perhaps its longevity is why the ladies love shopping there so much. It's what they've known their whole lives. But geez, I hope the show got compensated for how often they mention the store. Shockingly, Blanche doesn't respond to Dorothy's guilt trip with, well, gifts are how I show love, so get over it. Instead, she's introspective and realizes that she too has fallen into the trap of the capitalistic frenzy of the season and has overspent. All of that bemoaning has inspired Rose. Since everyone will be going their separate ways for the holiday itself, they should have a little roomy holiday between the four of them, just like in St. Olaf. No, Dorothy, that doesn't mean you'll be drinking eggnog in a cast iron bra. But doing that is an Easter tradition. What it means for Christmas is that they would all make gifts for each other. Instead of gifting a sweater or VCR, they'll give something meaningful and personal. All except Sophia. She's found the meaning of Christmas, and it is still at Neiman Marcus. Third floor. <laughs> That's right. Ladies' department. Fast forward, and it's already time for the St. Olaf Christmas extravaganza. Kind of surprising they didn't already have that planned. I've had one Christmas where I had a roommate, and part of our holiday planning was to include a gift exchange betwixt us. Anyway, it's time for the gifts, which are coming out from under a huge, real-looking tree. Unsurprising, the cost for a real tree in Miami is much higher than, say, here in the Pacific Northwest, but it's not unbelievable prices. That tree today would probably cost them somewhere between 60 to 160 bucks, depending on what type of tree they prefer. Starting with Rose, she was able to whittle the ever-popular turkey head brooch. My apologies, it's actually a syrup spigot, the kind you jam into a maple tree to get the syrup out. You know, something everyone in Miami needs. Fun fact, there are actually two types of maple trees that flourish in Florida. However, neither is the kind that produces syrup. To prove she was right about gifts being more fun when they're a meaningless product purchased at a store, Sophia informs Dorothy that once the idea of homemade gifts was decided, Rose returned the pearl earrings Dorothy loved from Jordan Marsh. Now she has a syrup spigot. Ho, ho, ho. Jordan Marsh was a chain of department stores that got their start in the 1840s in New England. Eventually selling off, the New York stores became Macy's, and one of the buyers created Jordan Marsh, Florida, which were all closed by 1991. Wearing their holiday best, the Snide Sophia is in a black dress with a white floral pattern and lace collar. Rose is wearing a light pink collared dress, Dorothy in a tan skirt with nine yards of extra fabric, paired with a white high-collar shirt and a vest with a sad salmon color and a floral pattern that screams Nana's resting chair. Making sure she looks as shiny and eye-catching as the angel atop a tree, Blanche is in her silver blazer and pants with a gold undershirt and matching shoes. Oh, who needs those pearl earrings? Dorothy has a gift made by her friend, a gift she can use if she's ever lost in the woods and needs to top her breakfast foods. As Dorothy processes her loss and tries to hold on to the sentiment of the evening, as it was her complaints that got them into this spigoty mess, Blanche starts beaming as she pours a drink from the punch bowl on the sofa table. She simply must give them the gift she's made. I love that feeling when you found the perfect gift and you just cannot wait to give it. Loving the idea she came up with, Blanche made the same gift for each lady. 
Opening the boxes, the gals find they've been gifted a calendar called The Men of Blanche's Boudoir. I love that the cover is her headshot for the show, the one where she's wearing the yellow blazer. It doesn't take away from it or anything. It kind of makes it seem even more legitimate that, like Samantha on Sex and the City, of course Blanche would have professional headshots. Blanche seems like someone who expects to possibly become a famous actress at any moment. Yes. So, yeah. That, She's just waiting out. to be discovered. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Until the day she died. <laughs> Flipping through the pages and acting like this was a thoughtful gift, the ladies are, well, speechless as to what they're seeing. Well, not totally speechless. Dorothy can muster a whoa when looking at September, leaving Sophia shocked Blanche could walk in October. I love Blanche's response to this. Not shy, but almost like she's acting humble at her accomplishment by touching Sophia's shoulder while turning her back to her. The concern surrounding Blanche's walking ability for October is in relation to the plentiful endowment of the guy posing for September. If a penis, toy, hand, or otherwise is too large, the cervix, should you have one, could be getting hit, which doesn't feel great and can lead to cramping. Or perhaps you're out of shape and all that bending around leaves your body sore. To ease your pain post-sex, you can take a warm bath, take some Advil, and let her rest. No matter if you're dealing with a Mr. September or a Miss January, sex should never hurt. If there is pain, make sure you have enough lubricant, that you're relaxed, and be sure to communicate your needs with your partner. If you have continued pain, talk to your doctor. Speaking of the calendar, you simply must go to YouTube and look up Golden Girls Calendar Blooper. There you will find the clip of the ladies rehearsing this scene. Except instead of men from Blanche's boudoir, it's the men of the props department for the show. They got some of the behind-the-scenes guys to make a fake version of the calendar, surprising the girls during rehearsal. It's not only precious to see them in regular clothes, even Estelle out of makeup, but to watch them laugh themselves into tears looking at the photos, it will cheer any sour mood. Having given their gifts, though sadly we only get to see the two, Rose begins to muse about how much she loves Christmas in St. Olaf, and by tomorrow, which will be Christmas Eve, she'll be there to celebrate it with her family. Dorothy disagrees. For her, there's nothing better than Christmas in New York. The snow, the skates, the Santas. This, of course, piques Blanche's interest. There was no better Christmas for Dorothy than the one she had in New York, 1932. She would have been about five or so. Hoping for backup, she asks Sophia if she remembers the wonderful holiday, and she does not. They may not be in touch all of the time, but Christmas brings the Hollingsworths together, leaving Blanche to realize that must be what Christmas is all about, being with the ones you love. After talking about their anticipation, they realize they are all excited to get home. I have a dream of having a Christmas in New York. That's on, like, very high on my bucket list. I would love to do that. Do you have anything? I know you're not huge into the holidays. Do you have anything that you're like, oh, a perfect Christmas for me would be at this place or something? Um, no. A perfect Christmas for me would be... Um, to not have one. <laughs> just to, to not have any obligation to do any of it. That's nice. Liter like, like and, and not have there be any problem with me not wanting to. Because a lot of times I get to a holiday and I'm like, I don't want to. Right. But I usually do a... <laughs> it's good for you it is 
Realizing they have a big day tomorrow, Rose working before the girls pick her up on the way to the airport so they can all get to their separate destinations, they decide they should head to bed. All except Sophia, that is. She's decided to stay in her chair and look at the tree a while. Taking a moment to watch the tree, the girls decide they too want to cherish the beauty of the moment. Personally, that is one of my favorite things to do during the holidays. It gets dark so early, the tree is illuminating the room, the fire is crackling, everything is dark and quiet. I turn on some of my favorite Christmas songs and read The Night Before Christmas. It's actually a tiny book I've had as an ornament since maybe my whole life. There is something so tranquil about the soft lighting and cozy stillness that feels peaceful. Just because I like to share stuff that others might end up liking, a song I love during those times is called A Song for Winter's Night by Sarah McLaughlin. It's all about missing the ones you love, but knowing that you'll be with them soon. still in the silence of my room I hear, I hear your voice softly calling Feeling that same love and inspiration, Rose breaks into song singing The First Noel, a song whose composer is unknown but is believed to have been written somewhere between the 1500s and 1800s. Letting Rose get through the first few lines with her lovely voice, the ladies are listening along. And just as they are about to join in with, Was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, Rose stops singing causing a visceral reaction to both ladies, so that she could share the story of how she tried to put on a production of A Christmas Carol, but with an all-chicken cast. Before we can hear any more of this undoubtedly intriguing tale, the ladies make a run for the bedroom, even Sophia, who has chosen the peace of not hearing the story over that which the tree brought her. It's the next morning, and Rose is at work at the Grief Center. She's talking with a Mr. Thurber, who isn't sure, nor is Rose, what his problem is. Pushing him to open up so she can help, he does. In just this week alone, he's lost his job, wife, girlfriend, house, car, and money. To top it all off, he has a very newly developed fondness for matches. Fun fact, the lighter, while it seems like a more advanced technology, predates the creation of matches by three years. Lighters in 1823, matches in 1826. Playing the man whose life sounds like a country song is Craig Richard Nelson, not to be confused with Craig T. Nelson of Poltergeist and Coach fame. Throughout his career, this Craig Nelson had more than 60 credits, some of which were on Home Improvement, Grace Under Fire, Murder, She Wrote, Wings, Diagnosis Murder, Night Court, Freddy's Nightmares, Doogie Howser, Empty Nest, Friends, Cagney and Lacey, Square Pegs, The Carol Burnett Show, Maud, and don't you know it, La La. It's kind of funny how they use Rose's counseling abilities. In one moment, she's claiming to be a trained counselor ready to help Mr. Thurber with his issues. But as soon as he shares what they are, she's like, yeah, you're going to need to talk to Dr. Escobar. Some real above-my-pay-grade stuff. As much as Mr. Thurber might need to talk to Escobar, he'll have to wait. The doctor is at lunch. Sending the sad pyromaniac to the waiting area, Rose calls over the next person she'll have to tell to wait— Mr. Thompson. We don't get to learn who Mr. Thompson is because as he's checking in with Rose, the girls walk in ready to go to the airport. Sitting all together, we have Mr. Thurber, Dorothy, Blanche, and another man we've yet to meet. All of this is a bit of an oh boy. It's very 80s to have people in a crisis center be portrayed as creeps or weirdos or crazies. 
Weird that we have such a stigma surrounding mental health and seeking the treatment for it. Staring with his large, long head, Mr. Thurber is about four inches from Dorothy's face. As she finishes primping herself, she notices the uncomfortable man and offers a hello. Then, after he asks, offers him a book of matches, which he proceeds to light one of the sticks. Nearly poetically, he asks Dorothy if she's ever really looked at a fire, the beauty, the power, the ability to do so much damage. Without a word of response, Dorothy daintily prances across the floor to Rose, asking how long she'll be. But Rose can't be bothered. She's helping this man who has lost all of his finances. How did he manage that? Well, he was a principal backer for Howard the Duck. Having a man visit a crisis center as he was experiencing financial woes due to him having been a producer for Howard the Duck made me guffaw. If you don't know of Howard the Duck, please stop everything and go watch it on the worst app ever, Peacock, a combo made in hell. For those that don't know, Howard the Duck is every cringy, uncomfortable, ugly moment you've ever seen on film in one film. Starring the wonderful Leah Thompson, the acclaimed Tim Robbins, and the walking, oh boy, Jeffrey Jones, Howard the Duck is the story of an alien duckman who comes to Earth and rocks the world of superstar-to-be Leah Thompson. She writes a song about him, and they make love. We see the silhouette of it. It's haunting. He smokes cigars, swears, bones. You see duck boobies in the first eight seconds. It all stays with you. With a budget of $38 million, contributed partially by Rose's client, the film was a wash, earning $38 million. No wonder he's there on Christmas Eve. Coco, do you remember where you were the first time you saw Howard the Duck? My neighborhood friend, across the street neighbor, his uh, parents' like TV room, sitting on the floor, even as a child, baffled. How old were you? I mean, I was seven, eight. <laughs> It was like after, right after it came out, so I was, I was I was young, but yeah, when you see the naked duck lady in the bathtub at the beginning, that is the moment I remember really being off put by it. Yeah. And I watched a few minutes of it last night to just kind of jog my memory, and it's as awful <laughs> as it is as it was the first time. It never the effect of that movie never never uh, never wears off. It's bad. Leah and- Thompson <laughs> is so so horny for Howard the Duck in that movie. It's awful. I didn't see Howard the Duck till I was in high school. It seemed vaguely familiar, and my friends were like, let's watch it, and we put it on, and we were all just like, what is this? So there's not an age where it's not upsetting. We guarantee you'll hate Howard the Duck. (laughs) (laughs) On Blanche's end of the chair train, she's been asked about going home for the holidays, which she is, but the guy isn't. Oh, he did that thing of asking someone just so he could make it about him. Cool. Anyway, he can't go home because he's an artist and his family is embarrassed. He's a literal starving artist. Can't sell a painting, can't afford food. He had to burn his paintbrushes just to stay warm in Miami. This visual, of course, makes the fire guy jealous he missed out. As someone who loves, appreciates art, and loves artists, Blanche feels for the guy and gives him $20 so he can have a nice Christmas dinner. As Rose finishes with the Howard the Duck survivor, she is delighted to tell the girls she is ready to roll. 
As they get up to leave, the artist, Mr. Meyer, thanks Blanche for the cash. An appalled Rose then breaks every HIPAA rule ever and tells Blanche that first off, he's not starving, he owns a very successful wide shoe store. Secondly, he's a pathological liar, to which he lies again that he isn't. Hearing this news, Blanche rips her $20 out of his hand. Now, not all artists are starving. With digital media, artists and artistic directors are needed more than ever, with an average starting salary around 50000 But if you're painting canvases at home, your success will vary, just like with an athlete or musician. Side note, I saw something the other day that pointed out that artists on social media are now called content creators, and their art is now being just referred to as content. So I'm working really hard on making sure I call art, art, and artists, artists. Playing the liar is Sam Anderson, who, besides having one of my favorite voices in television, is one of the busiest actors around with over 170 credits, so you've definitely seen him before the girls and since. He got his start in 1978 on a favorite of mine, Police Story, and works to this day having a miniseries about the Sackler family in post. Other works include WKRP in Cincinnati, Hill Street Blues, Dallas, Newhart, La Bamba, Critters 2, Uncle Buck, Growing Pains, Perfect Strangers, another favorite of mine, The Stand, Picket Fences, Angel, Jag, All of the CSIs, Lost, Justified, Bones, and drumroll please, La La. Finally, after making Sophia wait in the car and the ladies wait with these men, they are all ready to get to the airport and to their families for Christmas. Rose in her festive black and green checkered dress, Blanche re-wearing most of her silver ensemble from last night, only the gold has been replaced with more silver, which only serves to make Dorothy's non-festive drabness even drabbier. She's got some dark pants and a white undershirt with a brown sweater wrap that kind of looks like, not animal print, but like if she was wearing dog fur print, just some different shades of brown and dark stripes. Unaware they were mere seconds away from freedom, the ladies head to the door but stop when Blanche is taken aback by the newest arrival in the about-to-be-empty crisis center full of unattended folks that are needing support. A Santa has just come in with a big heavy sack. As we discussed last week, we know just how much Blanche loves to help out with a sack. Knowing where this is going, Dorothy quips that perhaps it is Blanche who should be talking to a mental health professional. Equally excited, but in a childlike manner, is Rose, who hopes jolly old St. Nick's appearance will cheer everyone up. But before they can take turns on his lap, easy Blanche, he pulls out a great, big, long gun. A gun we'll just call Mr. September. This, of course, leads to the ominous horn music as we head to commercial. Oh boy, they're in a mess now. Coming back from commercial, we get the much lighter Everything is Okay music with some jingle bells as we look over the outside of Rose's building, jumping fountain and all. You may not recognize him in the Santa suit, but under that beard is Terry Kaiser, a.k.a. Bernie of Weekend at Bernie's, a.k.a. a beetle that woos Dorothy in later years. Not only did Terry get his start in the 60s, he is still working to this day. Along the way, he was in Will and Grace, Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place, Walker, Texas Ranger, Baywatch Nights, The Fresh Prince, Friday the 13th, Part 7, Different Strokes, Hill Street Blues, WKRP in Cincinnati, Rhoda, Maud, and don't you know it, La La. Here he is in one of the many sketches he had with Carol Burnett. 
Hello. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but I'm new here, and I just have to talk to him about transferring my veteran benefits. You're, you're a veteran? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Sergeant? Captain. Army? Marines. I'll take care of you. You got it. Terrified by the gun, Dorothy starts to hand over her purse before this bad Santa can even make a demand. But she's in luck. He doesn't want their money or items. He was just lonely and wanted to spend Christmas with other people. Pointing out how dramatic of a choice he's made by holding them at gunpoint, the evil clause makes a good point. Of course I had to do it at gunpoint. You wouldn't have stayed otherwise. Well, he's not wrong. Except for Blanche, who might have considered it. To his point, Dorothy counters. How can it be fun to spend it with people you don't know who are only doing it because you're holding them at gunpoint? Well, he has an answer for that. Being alone at Christmas is the worst. He's always jolly, but no one cares. He doesn't get people, presents, or eggs. When he's reminded dyed eggs are a part of Easter, it only reminds him that that holiday sucks too. While the treatment and depiction of those with mental health issues has almost always been a problem on television and in movies, there is something a little comical about the extreme personalities in this ragtag group. Not because they're having a crisis or that we're laughing at their issues, but what they bring to the table as a person mixed with the other folks, well, it's just dang funny. For example, Santa has decided to start the festivities with some singing of Christmas carols, such as Silent Night. Seeing an opportunity to stretch the truth, Sam the Liar says, Of course I know it. I wrote it. He proceeds to then sing the song as proof of his ownership, which you can't help but laugh at. Taking him at his word, Santa forces Sam, at gunpoint, to shake his hand as he's so honored to meet the composer of such a song. Can you believe it? Sam is lying. From the Washington Post, Silent Night is over 200 years old. Originally written as a poem in 1816 by a priest by the name of Joseph Moore, Silent Night was written as Napoleon's upheaval of Europe was coming to a head and the skies were dark for weeks due to ash from a volcanic eruption in Indonesia. Two years later, after asking his friend and musician Franz Xaver Gruber to put the poem to music, the two men went into a church in Austria and sang the new song, Stille Nacht, Heigelnacht. I love that when Sam and Santa are having their moment and the gals get a second to talk with one another, the first thing Rose says is, we're going to miss our flights. Ma'am, you're being held at gunpoint. This is a serious situation here, and the last thing you should be worried about is a flight. You can't fly if you're dead. Blanche isn't worried either. She's going to pull the old bend and snap to cause a diversion. Then the girls can hit him, leaving Dorothy with one question. What are we, Charlie's Angels? Charlie's Angels was a hit action drama which was known for two things. It's pretty ladies and campy fight scenes. While the newer films have shown the angels fighting with power and skill, the plan of dropping something seductively and karate chopping the guy when he's distracted is very much on brand for the angels. Through its run from 76 to 81, there were many different girls. Jacqueline Smith was actually the only one to stay on the show through the series. Along the way, there was Kate Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, Shelley Hack, Tanya Roberts, and Cheryl Ladd. 
Besides her start as Melody on Josie and the Pussycats and her run on Charlie's Angels, Cheryl Ladd has nearly 100 acting credits, some in post-production currently. She was on Partridge Family, Happy Days, Charmed, Hope and Faith, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, CSI Miami, and appropriately enough, Santa Paws 2, The Santa Pups. Besides her acting, it was her good looks of strawberry blonde, big naturals, and classic 70s grooviness that brought her fame. Those big naturals that looked shockingly perky for their size are definitely holding up a bit more than Blanche's, even if she was on a trapeze. Interrupting the planning taking place, Santa is back and he's got news. The Silent Night guy not only wrote one of the most beloved and recognized Christmas carols, he was also the first choice for Potsy the sidekick on Happy Days. Except that role went to Anson Williams. Caught again. Speaking of Happy Days... Yes, Coco? uh, The guy who played the dad on Happy Days, Tom Bosley, voiced David Gnome. That's right. In a very creepy way. What a a double. Horrible show. Both of them, really. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, if you could only watch one of them, what would you watch? Oh, Happy Days. Oh, Happy Days. Oh, Happy Days. Talking to the girls, we learn why Santa has chosen this location. He used to visit the center when he, quote, had problems and everyone was always nice to him. So he knew it would be a good place for his Christmas hostage taking. So delighted to spend the holiday with his forced friends, Santa even brought gifts. Once again, the ladies are unreasonably calm, merely put out that they're going to miss their flights, which, as discussed before, is a plot whoopsie. Dorothy would never be so laid back about flying. But I didn't think anyone would be this relaxed at gunpoint either, so... Although I will say, when I was four years old and at my preschool, someone did come in and hold it up at gunpoint, and I was very calm. But that's mostly because I was very confused and didn't know what was happening. Putting her supposed training to work, Rose has had it. She's not going to entertain this maniac any longer. He's ruined their Christmas, so she's going to ruin his. Confronting him, Rose doesn't hold back. You aren't owed a happy Christmas. You make it happen by being kind and loving, not by forcing gifts on people that don't want it. As Santa starts to respond, he's cut off by Sophia in her stunning dark blue skirt and jacket with a salmon pink ruffled shirt. I'm glad we fly nowadays in basically pajamas and it's comfortable, but wouldn't it be something to get on a plane and see nothing but formal wear? It would be kind of nice. Maybe people would be nicer too. Well, Sophia's there because she too has had it. She's been waiting in the car for over half an hour like some sort of dog and she's ready to get to her destination. What she actually says is dachshund, which was one of those words I saw as a kid, but I hadn't heard it until I was older. So I always thought wiener dogs were actually called like dashit hounds. So in her own head and busy venting her frustrations, Sophia doesn't even see the gun Santa is wielding until Dorothy points it out. And when she sees it, She simply reaches over and takes it out of his hand. Right away, she can tell it's a toy gun. Without concern for the well-being of her child and friends, disappointed that her Italian, stereotypically surrounded by mafia daughter, couldn't tell the difference. Having had time to think over the words Rose yelled at him, Santa is now defeated. She was right. He's a loser. Rose clarifies, I never called you a loser, you're just in need of some help, and for that, you have come to the right place. Overhearing the conversation, Sam agrees with everything Rose says as well. He's been a liar his whole life, negatively seeking attention, and it's time that behavior comes to a stop. 
without a call to police, perhaps because she knows how productive police are with those experiencing a mental health crisis, Rose and the ladies start to leave. But not before Dr. Escobar returns from lunch. Not having another moment to spare, Rose simply tells the doc that the two men need to speak with him. Sam starts by introducing himself as a new man that has recently had a revelation and goes with Dr. Rooney from the Mayo Clinic. In watching the scene where the girls are hostages, you can't help but wonder if they did the right thing. How will we ever know? This is Deb McMahon, and I am with Crisis Systems Management, LLC. Uh, we've been in the business for about 20 years, training and developing crisis hostage negotiators all over the United States. And up to this point, we've trained about 27,500 negotiators uh, worldwide. And uh, we look forward to continuing to do that for the years to come. In this episode, we see that someone enters a room and declares that he's holding the room hostage. Let's start by looking at him. And you said that there's, you know, kind of two types of people in the situation where there are demands, but then maybe it's expressive. Can you touch on what those are and sure. kind of what the differences are? Sure. Well, I think, you know, probably historically when we look back over, you know, why people take hostages or get involved in standoffs is that, you know, we assume it's about money in a car or escaping some crime, uh, something to that effect. And we call those instrumental standoffs or instrumentally motivated standoffs. And then we have what we call expressive standoffs. And those are the standoffs that come as a result of people being, you know, betrayed or feeling lonely or that, you know, that they're despondent over the fact that they've lost a job or that they're having financial difficulty. And sometimes people don't always pick um, the most logical ways to kind of deal with that. But it's actually the most common motivation for standoffs in the United States. According to the FBI, about 90% or better of standoffs in the United States are expressively motivated. And in many cases, we find that expressive um, motivation to be related to relationship issues or family issues or loneliness or betrayals and things of that nature. So it sounds like this gentleman actually is pretty much falling into um, what we would expect for most standoffs in the United States. Is there a difference in your technique as far as how you manage negotiations between someone if they're being expressive or if they have intent? Well, actually it is. And one of the things that we say when we train negotiators is you can't bring instrumental solutions to expressive problems, meaning that you're not going to be trading and getting something in exchange and things of that nature with somebody who's expressively motivated. You have to bring expressive solutions to expressive problems. And what that means and what we train negotiators to do is to employ active listening skills, meaning that we take extraordinary steps to listen in all the best ways we can, you know, whether it be emotion labeling or paraphrasing or uh, minimal encouragers to say that I'm listening to you and sometimes just demonstrating, you know, by, you know, saying it out loud, you know what, you know, I sounds like you're, you know, going through a really difficult time. You know, let's talk about kind of what led us to where we got here today. And so we 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 train expressive solutions to expressive problems, but most of that has to do with listening. 
in the episode, we see once the situation begins, we see that the girls have a variety of responses, uh, some kind of ignoring it, some feeling uh, bothered that it's affecting the rest of their day, um, Rose getting upset and kind of putting her foot down. What do you, I know you guys train the negotiators, but in handling people that might ever end up in this very rare situation, what are those things that are good tips or tools to keep in mind if we do ever find ourselves in that? Because obviously our brains are going to go into crisis mode and we're not going to be thinking the most clearly and might not be reacting with the best mindset. Absolutely. And I think that when, you know, whenever any of us are watching television or a movie and we see how hostages are responding in certain circumstances and we say to ourselves, wow, if I was ever in a situation, this is what I would do, or I can't believe this person is acting like that. And what we've discovered is that people act different ways for a lot of different reasons. And in this case, uh, the girls actually have a lot of experience, life experience behind them. And so that probably contributes a lot to how they're going to respond. And that's everything from no nonsense. You know what? I've been around the block a time or two. You know, uh, you're not going to take advantage of me. I've got places to go and things to do. And sometimes that's life experience. It kind of contributes to that, especially if they've been through, you know, adversity or conflict in the past. And they've really learned how to deal with that, then they're not going to be afraid uh, to want to confront, in this case, the bad guy. Uh, in other cases, we find people acting what we call counterphobic, which is against who they are on a normal day-to-day -day basis. And that could be that they, you know, become confrontational in a way that maybe, you know, in the past, that's not how they deal with conflict because these circumstances are so extraordinary that their coping skills are kind of stretched and they act in a way that they wouldn't normally do. Then you have other folks who would just kind of, you know, sit down in the corner and just try to stay out of the limelight, try to stay out of the line of fire with the subject, you know, not trying to, you know, get into conflict with him. You know, other people try to engage and problem solve with him. But I think what it demonstrates is that everybody has, you know, an incredibly different approach and you never really know how you're going to react until you're in that kind of a situation. Is it best to stay quiet in the corner? Is it best to try to problem solve or is there anything that's kind of proven to be uh, the best choice you can make to stay safe in something like that? Well, there's all kinds of circumstances. And I think it would be the difference between the bank robbery gone bad or, you know, somebody who's instrumentally motivated versus the person who's clearly expressively motivated that that person who is aching so hard to be heard that sometimes just being that person, you know, who's willing to listen to what's going on. Um, and, you know, trying to behave kind of compassionately, you know, towards them and be willing to listen if they've got something that they want to express. Um, it also, we would say that, you know, recognize that, you know, the police are going to be there at some point, they are going to be making, you know, contact with the person in crisis. And that at the point that the police are trying to communicate uh, with the subject or the person in crisis, that this is where you kind of chill out, sit back, let the police get their work done. Because if the person in crisis is trying to listen to too many people, there's different messages. Uh, we can, you know, there can be a place where maybe a hostage has done such a great job, you know, being a good listener that the, you know, person in crisis ends up, 
engaging too much and becoming dependent upon, you know, that hostage rather than the police. And then, you know, the police aren't able to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Um, We always say uh, maintain a low enough profile that you're not agitating the subject in any way. Um, Definitely not going for a gun or anything to, you know, to that effect. Try to escape. If there's an avenue of escape, expect that there's a possibility. If it's a really bad standoff that there's a lot of potential for violence, you know, expect that maybe at some point the police are going to be coming in. And this may be where you keep your head low. Um, You stay down, you stay out of the way, um, try not to be part of whatever that resolution looks like. Large hostage situations, like something we would see in a movie, they don't seem to happen that often. You don't really hear about them that often. The emotional hostage taker uh, is more common. What is the more common hostage situation? Is it someone at home with a partner that is keeping them there? Is it at a work facility? What are kind of the commonalities you see? Well, all of the above of what you just said. There's actually three primary motivations for standoffs in the United States right now. Um, And 2020 statistics are primarily warrant service gone bad, meaning that the police have shown up uh, to execute a warrant. A person panics and realizes that They don't want to be taken into custody. Um, That hovers around and stays in the number one spot most of the time. Number two is domestic violence situations that have escalated to a point where uh, the police are called. And it's not so much that these people are necessarily the victims are being held against their will as a true hostage. It's, It's more like everybody's in the house and the subject doesn't want to come out to talk to the police and, you know, get a resolution. It's not like, um, you know, the wife or the children or the parents in some cases are being quote unquote held hostage, you know, like they're going to be available for trade or something. Um, It's more like they're going to be there until the situation is resolved, however. So that's usually the number two slot. Sometimes the number one warrant service and the number two domestic violence kind of goes back and forth. And then number three are mental health crises and uh, suicidal intent um, is usually in the number three slot. We do see a lot of these types of situations in TV shows, in movies. You know, we're talking about a TV show right now. What are either the number one thing or some of the things that you see that as an expert, you kind of roll your eyes at or just, oh, that would never happen that way. Like your pet peeve, <laughs> your pet peeve of how it's presented in the world. Okay, well, pretty collectively, um, all my fellow negotiators and negotiator trainers, we um, I think we roll our eyes most often at people being sent in to the incident site. You know, like we're going to, you know, Anthony LaPaglia and without a trace, you know, he sends somebody in, you know, law and order, they send somebody in, inside man, they send somebody in. And it's like, you know what, never in a million years are we sending somebody else in there. You know, it just so much changes the dynamics about, you know, bargaining power and risk to hostages and things of that nature, that that would go on the list of no, 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 never, never, never. We don't give the bad guy any more people, even if it's portrayed for for others. Do you have any, do you have a story that you're allowed to share of maybe uh, one of the more memorable moments in your career when you were able to assist in a negotiation? 
Well, probably the most famous one that really stuck out to me was uh, a standoff that we went to back in the 90s when I was in San Antonio area. And uh, we had a big standoff and the news stations were there and they were, you know, had were video recording from above where we were having our standoff. And coincidentally, on that particular day, I ended up going to this standoff uh, in my um, physical fitness attire because um, it was early in the morning. I had just got done with a run and a workout, um, but, you know, an emergency happens and I end up going there and there was some news footage of me wearing really nasty, sweaty pants and shorts and my hair was singing to the ceiling and this was caught on video and somebody that I know you know saw that and said okay really Deb you don't think you could have put on something better for you know your national debut like this and it's like you know what emergencies happen when emergencies happen next time I'll dress better yeah I think we have bigger fish to fry than to be worried (laughs) about your clothing (laughs) yeah it was a great standoff though it was one of those expressively motivated standoffs, you know, a subject was despondent over a woman who had um, fired him and had been instrumental in his termination. And really, of course, the best way to get your job back, right, is to go there and take somebody hostage at gunpoint, because that's always the best way to, you know, win friends and influence people. And, uh, and, but you know what, we were successful. We started out trading uh, bullets for orange crush, you know, he wanted something to drink. He was dying of thirst. And uh, before it was over, we got a, a full compliant surrender from him. And of course, he goes on to jail from there. But, you know, that brings me to the last point that I'll make just about, you know, stories and things that are common. And we always kind of laugh a little bit, laugh like, not like, haha, but, you know, there's something funny about it to some degree. And that is that Behind every standoff is a woman who has screwed a guy over somehow. And, you know, whether it's a relationship issue or a job related issue or a mommy issue or something, it just seems like, you know what, you get to talking to this guy and somewhere along the line, somebody's left him. Um, somebody has betrayed him in some way, cheated on him, took all his money, whatever the case. Um, but that was certainly one of those instances, too. So that male fragility is keeping you in business. Exactly. Thank goodness for that, right? (laughs) What inspired you to turn to this type of work? Well, I was in the Army for more than 20 years. And when I was in the Army, I was trained to be a negotiator. Um, But when I was getting ready to retire, really the only thing I wanted to do was train negotiators. And that's like the smallest niche in the world. I mean, there's not a lot of places that you go to say, hey, I want to be a you know trainer of you know crisis negotiators. So I ended up starting my own company and um, surrounded myself with incredible negotiators from all over the country. And honestly, it's been like the best dream job ever um, because we get to meet negotiators from all over the country dealing with some of the most challenging and interesting and frightful Um, circumstances that you can even imagine. And, um, but now I I say we look out across the landscape of negotiators in the United States. So many of the most successful are women. 
And um, there's so much more diversity overall on negotiation teams across the country, whether it be, you know, diversity in gender or ethnicity or background or upbringing or politics or any of those things. And we find that the more diverse a negotiation team can be, the better equipped they are to, you know, serve their communities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you have someone that can relate to someone uh, on a deeper level like that, that they, they would be able to maybe get more done. Well, that is so fascinating. You are so inspiring. That's such an amazing story. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate those really fascinating conversations. So I'm very appreciative of your time. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much again to Deb McMahon for taking her time to speak with us. She is with Crisis Systems Management, LLC, and you can find out more about crisis negotiation classes at crisisnegotiation.us. My goodness, another new transition, and this time it's the airport. Amazingly, even with their 30-minute delay of being hostages, the ladies have made it to the airport just in time for their flights. With hugs, goodbyes, and Merry Christmases, the ladies scatter. And as soon as they make it on their planes, they hear the devastating news. There's been a storm that has unexpectedly come to Miami, delaying all flights until Christmas night. Slowly, somberly, each gal sullenly walks from the plane to the waiting area. Before they can even discuss a plan, Sophia is approached by a Hare Krishna, or as he's described in the credits, an airport medicant, meaning beggar. The Hare Krishna are still seen in some airports today, but thanks to solicitation bans in larger airports like LAX, they are becoming more and more obscure. That wasn't the case in the 70s and 80s. The Hare Krishna are a branch of Hinduism that some view as a cult. Back when they were in airports, they were known for their orange saris, shaved heads except for a ponytail, then offering a flower but then asking money for it or sometimes selling the flower. We've got a real old boy here, as not only does Sophia yell at the guy to scram after calling him a chrome dome, she also yells he should get a suit, beg for his mother's forgiveness, and get a job. Well, his religion appears to be his job, so let's not judge Miss Obsessed with Priests. Also, the guy playing the Eastern Indian, Hare Krishna, is Buddy Daniels. Yeah, a white guy. Oh, boy. In all fairness to her frustration, the Hare Krishna were quite annoying and invasive when begging at airports. Hey, I'm already under stress here. Now I need to politely say no to a flower? No thank you. Buddy Daniels Friedman was lucky enough to get his acting start in this role. He's been working since this episode, even having things in post currently. The Young and the Restless, Eric Andre Show, Key and Peele, Tim and Eric, Eminem's Without Me music video, Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles, and Star Trek The Next Generation are just some of the many projects he has worked on. Referring to a bald person as a chrome dome may have come from the B-52 missions by the same name in the 1960s, or perhaps the villain of the same name in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. As Sophia chases the Hare Krishna down, Dorothy chases Sophia, dragging her back to their seats. I love the simple things they did on sets to make things look more legit. Like, this airport clearly doesn't have any windows, but they put up some bright pink blinds to give the illusion. Although they are the cheap metal kind that I had in my room as a kid, it still does the job. Merry Christmas to us, it's another new exterior. This time it's the Roadside Diner, which happens to look remarkably similar to the Roadside Diner in New Jersey. Like, exactly the same. Perhaps they drove and Dorothy and Sophia will get their New York Christmas? Oh, nope, 
it was just a good-looking diner. They're still in Miami, in a storm no less. Walking into the diner, a purple raincoat and umbrella-toting Blanche shakes off the cold as Rose in a black raincoat and the Patrillos follow in tan. They've never felt so cold or frustrated. What a night they've had. First they were hostages, then their flights were canceled. To top it off, they ran out of gas and had to walk two blocks to the restaurant, all while the storm was just getting worse. Sophia maybe had the worst night, all of that, and the heel broke on her shoe while she was crossing the street during their trek. Contrary to the sign outside, this is actually Albert's diner, and serving them is Albert. Coffee for all. All but Rose, who, like me, is ordering a hot apple cider with a cinnamon stick. Numbers! Serving not only hot apple cider, but all of their treats with novelty fanfare, Albert's Diner doesn't exactly compare to Knott's Berry Farm, so Rose will just have the coffee. Before passing away in 1991 from a stroke at only 47 years old, Teddy Wilson, a.k.a. Albert of Albert's Diner, had a successful career with over 80 roles. Known and loved in all of his roles, including The Waltons, Partridge Family, MASH, That's My Mama, All in the Family, What's Happening, The Red Fox Show, Cagney and Lacey, Tales from the Crypt, Quantum Leap, and of course, Lala. While we do see him again with the girls in a few years, in a situation that implies he may have lost his diner and more, he was best known as Sweet Daddy Williams on Good Times. Hey, but sweets, that ain't right. I mean, you're putting words in my mouth. Well, J.J., let me tell you something. It's either that or knuckles. <laughs> Still primping after a night walking in a storm, Blanche loves Christmas Eve as that was the night she met her husband, George. During her college years, Blanche came home and was set up by a friend with a wild man. Literally, Richard J. Wilde. Dick Wilde. And it was. They pulled over five times before they even got to the holiday dance they were headed to. Not picking up on the wild ride, Rose is proud of her friend for driving defensively during the holidays. From driversed.com, it's important to be a defensive driver year-round. Now that doesn't mean an aggressive driver. But defensive drivers are always looking ahead, planning their moves, and expecting other drivers to be making mistakes. Cars in parking spots could pull out any second. The car next to you might change lanes without seeing you. You might have to merge on an Oregon highway. All dangerous situations that, as a defensive driver, you'll be prepared for. Back to the dance. Turning away from the wild dick for just a moment, Blanche encountered Ernie Willis. He was so handsome she couldn't help but leave Richard in the dust. Leaving Richard at the other dance, Blanche and Ernie went to a bar. While dancing there, she heard a man say, May I cut in? Hoping to get in on the guessing, Albert chimes in with, George! Almost, but this time it was Thomas Pineville, so she and Thomas left. And before we can hear how the rest of her night went, Dorothy interrupts with a classic scream. Your story's giving me herpes. Just tell us when you met George. Well, she can't, because that was the following Christmas Eve. This was the year before she met George, and that was her exciting Christmas Eve story. Somehow having a sixth sense as to what the ladies might enjoy with their coffee, Albert, now done with the hamburger he was chowing down on behind the counter, brings them each a slice of cheesecake on the house. When Blanche laments she's too sad to even eat cheesecake, Albert asks if they're having a bad holiday. He is. He has to work on Christmas Eve. He'd much rather be home with his family. Comparing having to work to missing a flight, Rose shares their all-missing family time, too. 
This information is shocking to Albert, as he, based on how they were talking and laughing, had assumed that they were family. Albert's wisdom has made them realize they shouldn't be sad missing time with their family, they're with family. As they all make their rounds saying Merry Christmas to each other, Sophia shockingly gets annoyed. What are we, the Waltons? I know nothing of the Waltons, except for the teeth we talked about last week. I also know that at the end of each episode, the large family would take turns saying goodnight to one another. It's some real prairie house sap that has always bothered me because they didn't respond to the person they were saying goodnight to. Pretty quiet down now and get some sleep. Good night, everybody. Good night, Mama. Good night, Ben. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mama. Good night, Daddy. Good night, children. Good night, Daddy. Good night, Elizabeth. Good night, Cowboy. Good night, Jim Bob. Good night, Jim Bob. Good night, Jim Bob. What's going on? I was asleep. What's everybody doing? Good night, Good night Jim, Jim Bob. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Wishing they could return the favor of free cheesecakes and epiphanies, the girls come up with one of their more wacky plans. They'll just run the restaurant for the evening. Hopefully they won't rob him or totally screw up. Well, everything. Being so desperate to spend time with his family, Albert takes them up on it, especially when Sophia gives the oh boy response of, are you black, when he asks if they can cook. Well, that does it for Al. He's going to take an hour to go home and be with his family. Within seconds of him leaving, the girls are already robbing him of chocolate sauce that they want to add to their already free cheesecake. Scoundrels. Before they can find the sauce, Sophia takes a peek out the window to discover a Christmas miracle. It's snowing! The average winter temperatures in Miami hover around the mid-60s. There was recorded snow in January of 77, but the record low temp of 27 degrees was from February 1917. So perhaps it's a whopping 50 degrees and they're freezing. I remember when I lived in Vegas, even though I had come from living in Portland my whole life, it did not take long to acclimate. By my first winter there, I was throwing on a sweatshirt by the time it got to anything less than 69 degrees. Well, that's just nice. <laughs> Hoping to commemorate the uncommon and somewhat magical moment, Rose tries to get the jukebox to play some holiday tunes. What she does instead is hit the Beach Boys song, Surf and Safari. Surf and Safari was a single on their debut album of the same name. Released in 1962, it reached number 14 in the U.S., number one in Sweden, and was one of the songs I played bass for in the children's theater production I was in the band for in college. Holding each other close, the song, which is a summer jam, somehow works for the Christmas not spent with their biological family, but loved ones nonetheless. The Christmas where everything went wrong but won't soon be forgotten. The Christmas where they really learned it's all about who you spend it with and how you show gratitude, kindness, and love to others. When it comes to the holidays, they can be the most magical, but also the most difficult time of year. Expectations are high as the cost of things and the ideas surrounding spending money and time become heightened. What we all should know, be it from last Christmas when we were all missing our families, or this episode, it's not about what you spend, but who you spend it with. And it should never be with someone who holds you at literal or emotional gunpoint. If you find yourself struggling during the holidays or any time of year, it's okay to reach out for help. The days of thinking someone that's calling a crisis center is just a wacko are gone. It's all about self-care, self-love, and helping yourself. 
If you need to talk to someone, you can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 to get connected to a counselor. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we learn all the Sicilian curses in Sisters. It's time to start holiday shopping of our own. As I age, I find myself relating more and more to Dorothy's sentiment. The corporations and waste surrounding the holidays are both becoming overwhelming. That's why I'll be focusing my shopping on small businesses, local artists, and those we've featured on Golden Goodies. For great homemade gift ideas, be sure to check out the Golden Goodies from past episodes. I've mentioned before the hilarious Golden Girls posters. Well, I am mentioning them again for good reason. If you follow Golden Girls posters on Instagram, you know how clever and funny his work is. That wit has also been applied to his shirts on Tee Public, which you can find under Golden Girls Quotes. There was recently a sale, and for Halloween, I helped myself to a Scream for The Governess and a Pride Perfect Pat and Kathy image consultants. So if you're looking for art for your wall, shirts for your bod, or gifts for anyone you love, check out Golden Girls Posters on Instagram or Golden Girls Quotes at Tee Public. Perfect gifts for your golden gal loving friends, or if you just need to be your own Santa. Ho, ho, ho. If anyone knows who played that character, Gmail us. <laughs> if you were Ed Kleckner. Or you know an Ed Kleckner. <laughs> if your name is Ed if, Kleckner. If you've been affected by Ed Kleckner, <laughs> Gmail us. If you have Kleckner celophobia, it's all we do. Kleckner thelioma? Yeah. <laughs> Call today. It's all we do. And we, vaginal mesh. And we love it. You, you have problems peeing? Do I have problems peeing? No, I was just being an ad for catheters. Uh, <laughs> to instill fear in you that one day you will die? Well, I'm not scared of that. I'm scared of needing a catheter. We'll be right back. <laughs> Gotta get those jingle dogs in there. <laughs> Please no. You remember? I know. That was the worst. That God. was like the worst time in human history when That was like wasn't that around Beanie Babies? I feel like it was. Yeah, it was a real and mishmash Pokemon. of horrible. Yeah. And just everyone was obsessed with things and those friggin' jingle dogs. Jingle dogs and that animated dancing baby. <laughs> when the internet was still in its larva stage. I wonder if it's like, I don't know, maybe another form of information or something. Yeah, I think, yeah. Gathering and sharing. I, I think he wanted to commemorate that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's why there's a yeah, video of me playing soccer like absolute crap <laughs> when I was five. <laughs> Not wanting to be there. Dad, Dad burned a lot of video on me. <laughs> there's me, there's me um, learning how to ride a bike and the first shot you see is me just going by the camera going <laughs> like mid cry oh my god we have to see this <coughs> before the cough that's a weird one that was weird hmm. how would be a good way how would be not like that yeah his performance is just is wooden as wooden as a as a as a little wooden gnome <laughs> You know what I mean. Sophia is merely disappointed. Disappointed that her Italian, 
stereo. Oh no, interrupted by orange juice. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sisters. Is that your foot? <laughs> yeah. That, that's a good one. <laughs>